Matthew 26, 14 through 25. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unlimited bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Jesus said to him, You have said so. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you as we seek to understand and apply these words to our lives. We ask, Lord, that you would teach us that, Lord, you would be pleased, O Lord, to open this uh, passage of Scripture to our hearts, that, Lord, um, you would mold us and shape us uh, more and more in the likeness of Christ uh, through um, this time of worship. So, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning begins with a painful betrayal, doesn't it? Um, verse 14, one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests. Verse 15 informs us of what Judas had in mind. What are you willing to give me uh, if I hand Jesus over to you? And you may recall the meeting that we looked at last week back at Caiaphas' house. There was a uh, a secret meeting, an underhanded conniving meeting, if you will, where the powerful religious leaders got together and uh, the agenda on the docket of that meeting was, how are we going to destroy Jesus? And uh, that meeting seems to have ended with no uh, definite plan. So we can imagine the looks on the faces of these religious leaders when out of the woodwork comes uh, Judas, uh, uh, with his offer. What, what, what will you give me if I, if I hand him over to you? We can see the delight in their eyes. This is the opportunity that they've been waiting for. And uh, not only is it an opportunity, it's an opportunity that comes from really the most uh, intimate circle of people, those who are closest to Jesus. And the next shocking thing that we discover in our text, and I made reference to it last week, is the amount that Judas is willing to sell Jesus out for. Um, 30 pieces of silver um, was, the, was a low market value for a, a common slave at the time. Um, Jesus, Judas is willing to sell out Jesus, and he's willing to do it quite cheaply, actually. Uh, now, 
Judas has the cash in his hand. He's just looking for an opportunity to make his move. In the meantime, verse 17, it's now Thursday morning. The disciples asked Jesus, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? Uh, verse 18, Jesus instructs them to go into the city, find a certain man, say to him, uh, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Luke and his gospel tells us that it's Peter and John who get that assignment. And, you know, over the years, I've often thought about this assignment. And it really reminds me of one that comes in Matthew 21. Uh, if you, um, if you, you can look back there for a moment if you like. Uh, it's just before what we call his triumphal entry. Matthew 21, verses 2 to 3. Jesus tells his disciples to go into the village in front of in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt tied with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Um, I've often thought about these assignments. I, maybe it's my personality, but uh, I would be a little skittish about this one. Uh, if we put this in contemporary terms, it would kind of be like, uh, okay, uh, you two fellas, I want you to go down to Wellsville, and when you enter into town, you're going to find this little cavalier with the uh, uh, keys in it. Uh, uh, bring that to me, if you will. And if anyone says anything to you, just tell them the Lord has need of it. Um, I've always, I've always just, uh, some of these assignments, uh, you know this, probably most of you know the story. They do just as they're told. Uh, they go off into Wellsville, they get the Cavalier, and they bring it back, and uh, uh, Jesus drives it into the city. Um, it's actually not a Cavalier, it's a donkey, but you know the, you know the, uh, the application that I'm making here. Uh, here in this particular assignment, uh, you know, they're being asked to find a certain unnamed man uh, to go to a certain unnamed place where uh, this Passover is going to be, um, is going to be observed. There's actually a really important lesson in all of this. In verse 19, we're told that Peter and John, they do exactly as Jesus commanded them. Off they go. They do it. Um, it listen to Calvin commenting on this. The syntax is a little, bit, um, a little bit difficult, but I'll read it. I'll try to read it in a way that it becomes very clear. Calvin says, The readiness with which the disciples comply ought to be observed as a proof of their holy submission. In other words, the readiness upon which these these disciples, they just go. Uh, they go, which is really showing their, their submission. Um, he continues, For a doubt might naturally arise when in search of an unknown man, uh, whether they would actually ob obtain from this unknown man uh, of this unknown house what they asked by uh, Jesus' command. Uh, while they were aware that everywhere he was not only despised but even hated. And we have to remember that. Jesus has enemies all over the place. Uh, you're going to go into Wellsville, you're going to get this little car, and if anyone says anything, well, you know, Jesus has need of it. Oh, that might not get you very far. It could get you killed. Yet they make no anxious inquiry about the result, but peaceably obey the injunction. And if we are desirous to have our faith approved, we ought to abide by this rule, to be satisfied with the command alone and go forward wherever God commands, expecting the success which he promises, not to indulge in excessive anxiety. Uh, end of quote. What's, what's this important lesson? Well, if we're determined to follow Jesus in this world, we're undoubtedly going to be met with lots of resistance. There's a remnant of sin in our hearts that's going to be resisting. 
Sometimes following Jesus in the workplace is going to be far from popular. Um, there's going to be, um, there's going to be uh, cost to reputation, cost to promotion. There's, I mean, the, the list, we could just go down the list. And uh, I, I'm speaking to the choir here in many cases because those of you who have walked with Jesus for any length of time understand this. Uh, this kind of thing happens almost on a daily basis. Uh, the reason I'm pointing this out to you is because when you find yourself in these particular moments, it's kind of good to go back and think of these stories. You can, you can quickly memorize the gist of these stories and have them very quickly in your mind and in your heart when you find yourself in that uh, moment. You know, at least I'm not being asked to go into Wellsville and get into somebody's car and drive it back to, uh, back to Liverpool. Um, you know, we can think about some of the assignments that have been given to the saints before us. But most importantly, we have the ending here, don't we? We see how it turns out. And that is really meant to strengthen us. In, in our own particular chapter of church history, we don't have the ending. I mean, we have the grand ending, but we really don't have the particular ending of what it really eventually our faith is going to cost us. We don't, we don't always have that. So it's a real strength to our faith to be able to look at these stories and make these kinds of applications. Following Jesus in this world is it's rough. It's tough. Uh, it's not easy. That's why uh, God has preserved all these, uh, these stories for us that our faith uh, may be strengthened. In verse 20, we see that Peter and John's assignment was successful. They find the room. They make preparations for Passover. They're reclining together. And it's here... Uh, where Jesus drops a big bomb. If you look with me at verse 21, as they were eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Let's try to put ourselves into the, around the, the table here. This is a big bomb. Could you imagine hearing Jesus say this? I would think you would want to clear your name pretty quickly. Wait a second, is it, is it going to be me? Perish the thought. And of course, that's what the disciples, they begin to do in verse 22, one after another. Is it I, Lord? Is it I? But then you look at verse 23, notice how Jesus answered. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Okay, that's not a lot of help. We've all dipped our hands in the dish. It's a really vague response. Now we know if you read John's account, it gets a little more specific, but a little more specific. There's still a lot of unknowing and uncertainty here. And I, I, I think that there's a, you know, it's often pointed out in this verse, and I think correctly that Jesus is purposely being vague here so that the disciples will begin to examine their hearts. A lot of passages of Scripture call us to examine our hearts. We don't want to obsess over our hearts. The old rule that the old preachers used to make is for every look you take, for every one look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. That's good news. That's good advice. Uh, but how often do the Scriptures call us to do this self-examination, to look at uh, where our hearts are? Undoubtedly, they were looking at their hearts at this point in time. Uh, Jesus then makes a comment that, uh, was most certainly stunning to at least 11 of the disciples. Verse 24, Jesus says, The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Um, 
the, the rest of the remainder of the message this morning really is going to center uh, on this verse. There is a lot of theology and insight in this particular verse. Um, in this verse, we find two things that, that really we're going to base the rest of this message on. And these are, these are issues we've been studying on Wednesday nights. So, so uh, a lot of you already know where we're going to go with this. Um, there, there are two things here. If you look at in the words, the Son of Man goes, it is written of him, we see that there's a plan. Uh, this isn't just, Jesus isn't just making this up as he goes here. Uh, nor is Jesus reacting to the evil connivory of men. It's important that we see that. There's a plan going on, and what's happening here is God is sovereign. We see the sovereignty of God, but we also see something else with the rest of the verse, namely, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed and following. Uh, we see that um, there's human responsibility there as well. So we see these two issues of both God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Let's take a look at these in the order uh, that they come in. Uh, it's, you know, it's been a while, uh, but some of you will recall that when we first started uh, our study in Matthew's Gospel, I, I used to make a lot of references uh, to these uh, these connections that Matthew makes to the Old Testament. Do some of you remember those? It's been a while. Um, but if you think about how Matthew's gospel starts, what's the beginning? How does it start? It starts with a genealogy, right? And you go to read the names and you get Abraham, you get David, and then after that, they're pretty hard to pronounce, aren't they? Okay, and so what's the, a lot of times you end up doing, kind of doing this business until you get down to the end of the genealogy. Well, that genealogy is very important. What is that genealogy showing? It's showing that Jesus is connected to Abraham and to David. What is the important connection? Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God has made to Abraham and to David. You see, so right from the very start, Matthew, more so than, than uh, Mark, Luke, and John, is connecting the events of Jesus' ministry, his life and earthly ministry, to all of these promises that are going on in the Old Testament. So a lot of scholars believe that Matthew was really written with a Jewish audience in mind because they knew the Jewish audience knew the Old Testament. They didn't call it the Old Testament. It was the Hebrew Scriptures. So Matthew is, is working and laboring to show all of these promises that are in the Hebrew Bible and how they're connected to the life of Christ. So we have the genealogy right from the get-go. Then the very next thing is the, the birth of Jesus is announced. And after the birth of Jesus is announced, we read in Matthew 1.22. And if you want to write some of these verses down, I'll give them to you. Uh, if you want to look at it later, because it's a fascinating thing. Matthew 1.22. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This had, all, this, this had already been told to the people of God that this was going to happen. In chapter 2, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. Joseph is, of course, Jesus' adoptive father. And the warning is that he has to flee to Egypt. He's to pick up his family. He's to run off to Egypt. Why? Because King Herod has learned that there's been one born who is king of the Jews. Now, King Herod certainly was an advocate of that old proverb, this town isn't big enough for the two of us. One of us has got to go. 
So that's, that's his new campaign. One of us has to go. Unable to figure out the identity of Jesus or to locate Jesus, this man was so wicked. You know what he did? He ordered the slaughter of all of the male children who would have been approximately Jesus' age. The angel of the Lord warns Joseph, you know, hightail it out of there. Go down to Egypt. Matthew 2, verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Of course, Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt. Herod kills all the children. Verse 17 reminds us that God had told us this would happen through the prophet Jeremiah. Matthew 2, 17. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Chapter 3, Matthew introduces us to us this strange character who's out in the wilderness proclaiming uh, that the, uh, the, the Lord is coming. He's the voice of the one crying in the, in the desert, in the wilderness, if you will, will prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. All of this is according to the plan. For verse 3 tells us that uh, uh, this was he of whom uh, the prophet Isaiah spoke about when he said the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. We come to chapter 4. It tells us that John the Baptist is arrested. Jesus, he withdraws into Galilee. Uh, Matthew 4.14. Again, Matthew is showing us that this was in accordance with what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. You skip down to chapter 8. Jesus heals many who were oppressed by demons, cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick. Verse 17. We're told this was to fulfill what, the, what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness, bore our diseases. Chapter 12, Jesus, uh, it's a story where Jesus heals a man with a withered hand. He does it on the Sabbath, infuriates the, uh, the Pharisees. Matthew 12, 15 to 17. Um, we're actually backing up to Matthew 12, 14. The Pharisees conspire against him how to destroy him. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. Many followed him, he healed them, ordered them not to make him known. Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. That's not all. There's more. Chapter 13, Jesus speaks in parables. Verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And then we come along to Matthew 21, namely what we call Jesus' triumphal entry. And many of you know the connection to that, to the prophet Zechariah. Um, you know, we're told that uh, Matthew 21, 4 tells us that all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, uh, verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So what, can we, what do we see here in this brief survey? Matthew is laboring to make all of these connections, that all of these things that are, are happening are part of God's plan. And they're happening exactly the way God wants them to happen. And I think it's interesting that a lot of times when Matthew, as you've listened to me read all these verses, a lot of times when Matthew makes the connection that all of these things are happening according to plan, he makes the connection when Jesus is fleeing. He makes the connection when evil men are attempting to kill him. Now, what do we learn from that? I think Matthew's trying to show us something. I think the Holy Spirit's really trying to show us something here. What is it? 
He's showing us that God is not reacting to the canavery of evil men. We need to remember that. God is not caught off guard and reacting here. This is all happening according to his plan. He's in perfect control. Perfect control. Without this, we might come to the conclusion that, uh, that God is reacting uh, this way. Now, um, in our current text, we're told that Jesus has, or Judas rather, has sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. But you know, there's something that Judas doesn't seem to understand. And it's something that, that the wicked don't ever understand, is that he is actually carrying out God's plans. He's actually carrying out God's plans. Verse 24, Matthew 26, verse 24, for the Son of Man, what? He goes just as is written of him. I should take your breath away. And of course, we have a lot. There's been a lot that's been written of concerning Jesus' suffering. We might think of the first announcement in Genesis 3.15. We could think of Psalm 69, Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. We could think of Daniel 9.26 or Zechariah 12.10. We could think of all of these verses that, that, that speak of the suffering of the Messiah. Now, we could say much more about the sovereignty of God, but I think we get it, don't we? God is in complete control. Uh, well, we're, we also see from verse 24, Matthew 26, 24, that we are still responsible. Uh, Jesus picks this up with the second part of the verse. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better had he not been born. Uh, sometimes people will uh, object to all of this and they'll say, well, you know... Uh, uh, Okay, if God is in control like this, and if his plans are going to come out just the way he says, how can he find, how can he find Judas responsible, for example? How can Judas be held responsible for this? If this is part of God's plan, and of course uh, 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 Judas carries this out, how is he still responsible? And it's a great question. If you ever ask that question, it's a great question. In fact, it's the question that, that uh, uh, the Apostle Paul takes up in Romans 9. Uh, he's speaking about the sovereignty of God in Romans 9. And then finally he breaks forth with a question. He says, why does God still find fault? Well, uh, the Apostle Paul makes no attempt to try to figure out how this works. But what he does do is he makes it really clear that we're responsible. This is what the scriptures do everywhere. They show two things. Namely, God is sovereign. And two, we are responsible Let's look at this responsibility. If we're asking the question, how can, how can Judas still be held accountable if this is all part of God's plan? Well, let's think about this for a moment. Judas was very responsible. You know, Judas, had, he had heard Jesus speak of his death. He had heard Jesus speak of his crucifixion. He had heard Jesus speak of his burial. He had heard Jesus speak of his resurrection. In fact, Judas had heard Jesus preach over and over again for three years. That would have been incredible, wouldn't it? And the best of us preachers, I mean, our sermons are up and down, up and down. I don't need to tell you that. Some are really good. Some are really average. Many are really average. I'll leave you to be the judge of this one. It might be really average. Occasionally, some are below average. Uh, we do the best we can. <laughs> 
That's not the case with Jesus. You didn't get no average sermon out of him. You didn't even get an above average sermon out of him. You know what you got out of him? You got a perfect sermon. You're never going to get that out of me. Judas got that out of Jesus every day. Every day. Judas saw Jesus perform miracles. He saw Jesus return hatred and evil for good. He saw that. Judas, Judas worshipped with Jesus. You know, Jesus worshipped the Father. Imagine what those worship services were like. Imagine worshipping right next to Jesus. Judas had undoubtedly performed miracles. Yet none of this softened his heart. None of it softened his heart. All of these privileges benefited him not. On the contrary, all these privileges reaped increased judgment upon him. Every time he received a privilege, he had a greater sense of responsibility, didn't he? He's far more responsible than someone who'd never heard of Jesus. Far more responsible than someone who maybe only heard Jesus one time. It was clear in the back and could barely hear what he was saying and only got a little bit of it. If you could have gotten just this much, it would have increased your responsibility. Judas was in the inner 12. All of this increased Judas' responsibility. Now, we can't begin to plumb the depths of that mystery of how this all works, the interconnectedness, God is sovereign. We see that Judas is responsible, and from that we make application to ourselves. God is sovereign. We are responsible. How that works, I don't know. I don't know how that works. I don't know. I don't know anyone who does know how that works. But there's an important lesson here for us. And again, I'd like to use Calvin's words. Um, he says, quote, let us therefore learn to repent early. Let us learn, therefore, to repent early, lest our long-continued harshness should confirm the reign of Satan within us. For as soon as we have been abandoned to this tyranny, his rage will have no bounds, end of quote. And this is what we see in the heart of Judas. Judas was a guy who loved money. And he continued to love money. And he continued in unrepentance. And what happened? He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Well, let's make application. It's pretty easy to do, isn't it? Each one of us, including myself, we're being able to come here this morning as a privilege. Boy, how how our culture looks at going to church. You know, it's, it's, it's a real privilege to be here this morning. To be in a room with people that believe and to worship the Lord. His presence is here every Sunday. To hear His Word, sing praises. These are privileges that increase our responsibility. And the question before us is, has this softened our hearts? 
Is this softening our hearts? Um, you know, someone might say, well, you know, Rick, it's a silly kind of question to ask us that. I mean, you know all of us. It's kind of a silly question to ask. I'd say, no, it isn't a silly question to ask. No more than it would have been a silly question for Jesus to ask the twelve. Are all of you true believers in me? Would that have been a silly question for Jesus to ask now that we've looked at this passage? No. I mean, if we were going to find a community that was completely believing, it would have been the 12. If we were going to find a group of people where we say, you know what, every one of those are true believers, it would have certainly been the 12, wouldn't it? Yet one of them was no believer at all. He looked like a believer, undoubtedly talked like a believer, even undoubtedly performed miracles. He sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. It's a very relevant question. If the answer is yes, examine your heart. Yes, I love Jesus. I, yes, my heart is so changed as a result of my love for Jesus. And, no, my life is not perfect, but yes, he's working in my life. If that's the case, if you can say that, my goodness, sing from the housetop. Sing from the housetop. How blessed it is to be in Christ Jesus this morning. Our lives are far from perfect. Don't look at, if you look at your life and you're looking for perfection, you're going about it the wrong way. None of us are perfect. Guess what? I'm not perfect either, and that's no secret to any of you, is it? Especially those who have come to know me. I didn't even need to share that, did I? But is your life changing? Not externally, internally. Is there a hatred for sin beginning to well in your heart? Don't think necessarily right now about the commitment of sin. We're all committing sin. But what happens to you after you've done it? Is there a hatred of it? Boy, if there is, that's a good mark that the Holy Spirit has made His residence in your heart. And what a blessing that is. But if we answer in the negative here, if we answer no and we say, you know, there, I don't know, I just don't think there is a principle in my life that's leading me to follow Jesus. I'm not, I don't, I don't think that principle is there. If we're saying that, then we need to take a look at what happened to Judas. Because if we're answering in the negative here, we're headed down the same path. To exit this life and go through the doorway of death apart from Jesus is such a bad thing that it would have been better had we never been born. Matthew 26, 24. Let's stop there. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, we thank you for this really difficult passage of Scripture that we've come to this morning, Lord. A very sobering passage where we see, O oh Lord, uh, 
the decisions that one man made so many years ago is still affecting him now and uh, will continue to affect him for all eternity. Uh, Lord, as we see now, there's an opportunity for us to repent and Calvin's advice is to repent early. May we, may we come to you this morning and may we come to you all day and every day with repentant hearts that we would not follow that path. And, O oh Lord, may we also re rejoice for the salvation that you have given us. And may our knowledge of what has taken place to do this, may it awaken and enliven us, O oh Lord, for the need to evangelize, the need to warn our loved ones, the need to, uh, to really appraise all those around us of the, of the real sobriety of all of this. Uh, that it's very dangerous to play fast and loose with sin, and it is so dangerous to be apart from you. So, Lord, we pray that you would work these lessons in our hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Can you stand?